After our Turkish coffee podcast last week, I realized that I really missed having coffee at a cafe. So I finally went out to one with a friend, which was the first one in a long while. What about you, Nazla? So have I. <laughs> But I've not yet set foot in a restaurant ever since they were closed down on November 20. I actually miss dressing up, going out and ordering something out of a long menu at the whiff of the moment. <laughs> and you wouldn't have to clean up afterwards. Particularly that. <laughs> But there is always the chance that we will not be able to go back to our favorite restaurants because so many of them went out of business during the pandemic. So today we want to discuss restaurants and the place they have in our life and heritage. We'll take up the 2000 years history of eating out how restaurants developed in this part of the world and what they mean for us personally, before and during the pandemic. And of course, our tips on where to eat and where not to eat in Turkey and beyond. This is the Turkish Coffee Podcast by Nazlan Ertan and Aygen Aytaç. been friends for decades as they traveled and worked all over the world. As we discussed in our podcast on food, restaurants like coffee houses was a casualty of the COVID-19 pandemic. The restaurants that had been part of our lives closed down, some of them permanently. But there have been some small positive signs this month. First of all, the financial aid to the catering sector has materialized. The Turkish government has started last week giving subsidies to restaurants that have suffered a serious loss of profits. Secondly, as of March, the restaurants started having guests. Though none of us has gone yet, many people have. But of course, the restaurants can only take half the tables they used to have before the pandemic. Yes, COVID-19 has and will continue to change the sector both in Turkey and globally. There are, of course, certain lessons and measures that the restaurants have taken, which I hope they keep. I agree with that, particularly on hygiene. Hopefully, the pandemic has put an end to those buffet tables, which had long been on the decline anyway, besides holiday resorts and cruises. They are not only very wasteful, but neither are they particularly sanitary. Well, the customer's desire for hygiene will remain on top of the agenda for a while, for sure. And it could even conflict with the pre-pandemic sense of aesthetics and ambiance. Just imagine the traditional fine dining scene in the old days. You arrive at a restaurant and your table is already set, with a tablecloth or chic placemats. The cutlery, the glasses are all laid out and shining before your eyes. Oh, the good old days. This would be unacceptable now. The sanitation would need to be more visible to diners, both in high-end restaurants and in your neighborhood diners. So one use only cutlery or cutlery brought in a special package perhaps. And I think it would be a long while before tablecloths come back. And definitely not linen napkins, they are not coming back. But somehow the restaurants will cope. After all, they have managed to come that far in history. They have weathered many difficulties from the economic crisis to harsh rulers who wanted to close them or stop them from selling alcohol. Alcohol licenses of restaurants are a very controversial issue, of course. Turkish restaurants have been complaining that it has become very difficult and long to obtain permission to sell alcohol. A recent regulation last year also made it very expensive to obtain this license. To give a concrete example, the owner of a wine bar can actually buy at least 300 bottles of good quality wine for the price of a wine license. This is a major expense for a startup. 
But ever since people started dining out, there have been restrictions on what they can and cannot eat ever since restaurants started in Pompeii 2,000 years ago. Last December, when most people around the world were baking bread at home, archaeologists announced that they have discovered a Roman food counter in the ancient city of Pompeii. The stand dates back to before 79 after Christ, before Mount Vesuvius erupted destroying the city. Yes, it was to Pompeii that Romans came to gamble, to find girls and to eat and drink. In fact, the word hospitality comes from the Roman hospice, meaning host, guest or a stranger. So many conflicting meanings in a word. Yes, funny, right? And Romans believed that Jupiter, the god of gods, was ready with his thunder to punish those who did not obey the laws of hospitality. But I suppose it wasn't before very long that this god-watched hospitality became organized and commercialized. The food was not free, as price lists were also found. The archaeological discovery last December found food stalls and even fragments of duck bones, remains of pigs, goats, fish, snails and fava beans in earthware pots. Some of the ingredients had been cooked together like a Roman era paella. That sounds delicious actually. <laughs> but this last discovery was of a fast food stall in Pompeii. Archaeologists have also found around 160 properties that have been bars or restaurants in the area. These had ovens, sinks and storage spaces. So you are saying that restaurants came before coffee houses historically? Yes, according to most accounts, they came right after brothels and in parallel to inns. They served wine not coffee or tea or even hot water. But that irked Emperor Tiberius, who worried that people who sat together to eat and drink may plot an uprising. So he put restrictions on the eating houses. Then his successor, Claudius, closed down some of the taverns. But finally, Emperor Nero, who loved taverns himself, came up with a guideline. He said that only vegetables or pulse could be sold there. And of course, wine. The Roman innkeepers invented the concept of mixing water and wine. Honest ones put that on their price list. Water with wine was half the price of wine. Others did that secretly. Some of the graffiti found on the walls of those inns showed the customers curses and complaints. And hence the birth of the first restaurant critics. But I suppose inns, taverns and restaurants were not only present in the Roman Empire, but other parts of the world as well, no? Yes, of course. In my research, I came across this theory that the home of restaurants was China in the 12th century. And knowing your love of Asian cuisine, I noted this down for you. Good. <laughs> it certainly wouldn't be a surprise that restaurants started in China. They had a huge culinary culture, there was a lot of movement around the huge land, and of course, there were huge cities. Exactly. Unlike the hedonist Romans who came to Pompeii to have fun, the clients of the first Chinese restaurants were in for the business, whether peasants bringing their goods to the markets in the cities or businessmen. There was huge trade between the north and south capitals, and Chinese tradesmen traveling outside their homes weren't accustomed to strange local foods. I see where you are getting at. The original restaurants in those two cities are essentially southern cooking for people coming up from the south or northern cooking for people coming down from the north. So you could say that the first restaurants were ethnic restaurants, which I love. It's a good twist that one of the cuisines which have the most ethnic restaurants in the world is also the place of the first ethnic restaurant. Yes, 
And this trend continued and accelerated. Chinese and Mexican immigrants to the United States bought their cuisine there. Italians and Greeks working at mines in Belgium brought their pizzerias. Indians brought their curries and dals. And Turkish workers, of course, carried their cuisine to Berlin, London and all around, really. Yes, ethnic restaurants are like a map of migration. Which people traveled where, settled in which part of the city. The dinner shops and the Indian and Chinese takeaways have provided a quick and cheap meal, though they have not always been the best culinary examples of their country. <laughs> Then, countries discovered the importance of culinary diplomacy. In 2012, America's State Department launched a chef corps to promote American cuisine abroad. The French had long been present with its Le Cordon Bleu schools, which had the support of its embassies. Thailand's government sends chefs overseas to introduce pad thai and masaman curry through its global Thai program. Oh, but the countries known as best net exporters of their national cuisine are not Thai nor American. A recent study by the University of Minnesota, based on restaurants around the world, shows that the largest net exporters of their cuisines are the Italians and the Japanese, followed by Turks. By net exporter, we mean that the number of Turkish restaurants abroad are by far higher than ethnic restaurants in Turkey, right? Right. Most Japanese and Turks indeed prefer their own cuisines. Do you remember how we used to complain in Ankara that there were no Indian or Thai restaurants? Finally, we took a cooking course to do it ourselves. <laughs> yes. But I do want to take you and the listeners to the restaurants of the Ottoman Empire and to the first state regulation on how they should be run. Tell us, who were the first restaurateurs of the empire? The Greeks with their taverns, or the Armenians with their sweets, or the Levantines. Ah, but let's look for a moment at the term restaurateur. This, of course, takes us to the most popular story of restaurant history. Since the word restaurant is French, from the French word to restaurer, or to restore or revive oneself, the French insist for centuries that they founded the modern restaurant. That's very basic culinary history. When the French Revolution broke out, the aristocrats were beheaded, and their cooks, now out of a job, went to the large cities, opening their restaurants to the new bourgeoisie. This may well be the beginning of fine dining, but there were taverns and alehouses all around Europe before the revolution, from London to Greece. By 1577, there were 24,000 alehouses in England. It doubled in the next 40 years. Exactly. Samuel Johnson, the witty British linguist, said in 1791 that nothing produces as much happiness in man as a good tavern or a good inn. <laughs> the catchword was, of course, man. Exactly. From China to London, women were not among the customers. And certainly not in the Ottoman Empire. Definitely not. the Ottoman Empire, which stretched from the Balkans to the Middle East, had a vast influence on what we eat today, from the falafels to dried figs. But it took a while for dining out to flourish. The first food offered to the residents of Istanbul came from the Sultan's kitchen directly. The Topkapı Palace had 10 kitchens, with 1,600 staff who prepared food to the Sultan, to his family, the palace staff, and the public, to the wealthy locals, to those with nothing. So, one of the ways to eat out around the 15th and 16th century was to linger near the palace, ideally mid-morning or after the mid-afternoon prayer. Exactly! 
and the fort was also served at imarets around the empire. These, located around mosques, would provide food to the poor, to the travelers, to the students, and lastly, to women. These were mainly prostitutes and soups. They were free of charge, but there was also eateries around the empire which charged for their food. And these fell under three categories. Tandoori shops, the forefathers of the Ojakbashi of today, vegetable dishes and stews ready to serve, which made up the Esnaf Lokantası, the small restaurants of today, and those which specialized in tripe and tripe soups. But there must be more. By the 16th and 17th centuries, there were taverns run by the Greek population and pastry shops. I remember that I read in a book women were allowed to go there and enjoy milk puddings. You are right, but the palace kept a sharp eye on these. A decree in the late 16th century banned women from those shops because they were used for prostitution. <laughs> so men and women were simply looking at each other's eyes, but probably in that strictly conservative society, even this amounted to prostitution or adultery. <laughs> I also heard that the first sanitation rules for eateries were made early 16th century. A decree of the Sultan in 1502 said that food should be cooked immaculately and served in clean bowls and the aprons of chefs should be clean. Exactly! But none of these early restaurants remained in our days, unlike Wilton's in London, which dates back to 1742, or Precope in Paris, where the French Revolution was plotted. We do not have very old restaurants in Turkey. The oldest I know is Hajı Abdullah, that dates back to 1888. In Ankara, there was the Carpet Restaurant, established by a Russian refugee in 1923, and it was perhaps the only restaurant in the young capital. Mr. Karpovich, known as Papa Karpic, often entertained the political and diplomatic elite there. And it was in this restaurant dansant that Atatürk met and danced with actress Dada Gabor. The restaurant was reopened as a bar in the 1990s, but could not make it to the 21st century. The restaurants in Turkey have a short lifespan in general. It's a difficult sector where profit margins are very narrow. Yes, so many of the good restaurants of our youth are no longer there, but there are flashy new ones, no? Yes, in the 21st century, gastronomy has indeed become an art that uses food to create happiness. Gastro-tourism has become common, food critics have become every bit as prestigious, if not more than art critics, and chefs have become veritable stars. I agree. You know, my favorite channel is Kitchen24, which I watch around the clock. My favorite chefs are Jamie Oliver. I especially like when he goes around the world discovering new gastronomic cultures. Or Donna Hay, an Australian who makes great food look so easy. And fortunately, there are many Turkish chefs around, either on TV or on social media, such as Şemsade Nisad. Some of the bright young chefs have also opened their own restaurants. One of my favorites, of course, is a nearby one, Od Urla. It's chef Osman Sezener, who comes from a family of restaurateurs. Yes, his family runs Pizza Venedik, a rare restaurant that remains since our youth in Izmir. Yes, Osman has studied and taught in culinary art schools, then decided to leave teaching and he opened his own restaurant in Orla, which is becoming very chic. Do you have any tips for our listeners on where to eat and where not to? When I was living in Istanbul a few years ago, my favorite restaurant was Lebiderya in Taksim. It was a very sophisticated rooftop restaurant looking over the Bosphorus with great seafood and vegan options. <laughs> I'm saying this, but I hope it still maintains its quality. Unfortunately, it has closed down due to the pandemic and it will not come back. Oh, 
What a pity. Actually, I'm always hesitant while recommending restaurants because I've some horrible experiences. For example, there was a particular dish I adored in a restaurant while I was living in Baku back in 1993. One day, I accompanied a huge World Bank mission to the restaurant and keenly recommended that particular dish to all 20 people in the group. To my horror, when the dish was served, it looked very different and it tasted awful. We learned that the cook was on leave that night. Who knows who prepared our food? That's why I'm not keen on recommending any restaurant or any dish to anybody. What about you? You know, I'm easy to please if I like the atmosphere. But I would like to share some tags we stick on restaurants in Turkish tabloid press. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> well, we say that the top place to propose is the Anemon Hotel in Galata, Istanbul. It has a view of the tower and the Golden Horn. On the other hand, the best place to strike a political deal is Tridia in Ankara. Many politicians have decided to switch parties or change their votes there. And if you want a foreign investor to invest in Turkey, take him to the sunset in Istanbul. And no Turkish celebrity would be considered a celebrity unless he or she is seen in Luka in Bebek, Istanbul. Exactly. And no Turkish man would be considered a Turkish man unless he struggles for the bill at the end of the meal. Comedian Cem Yılmaz made a whole show mimicking men insisting that they pay for everyone. Have you seen other nationalities doing that? I don't know about other nationalities, but I am a good example of a Turkish man. <laughs> When I was working at the BBC in London, nine of my friends from university visited me for lunch. They were from different countries. I took them to the BBC's restaurant and insisted to pay for all. First, thinking that they were students and I was earning money. Secondly, it was in my jeans, of course. The group looked at me in astonishment and they were like, huh, okay, <laughs> they made me feel stupid to pay, let alone struggle for the bill. I think Mexicans struggle for the bill, so clearly there were no Mexicans in your group. <laughs> no. <laughs> But all nationalities have their peculiar restaurant behavior, both today and historically. In Portugal, it would be considered an insult to chefs' abilities to ask for salt and pepper at the table. In Paris, it was the same. And in the 12th century China, waiters used to sing the menu. Good one if they have a good voice. But if they don't, they probably would get no tip. <laughs> On tipping, I was warned against tipping the waiter in Japan. And in France, I was told never to leave too big a tip because waiters mock you. On Turkey, on the other hand, you should tip big. Yes. So in the UK. Once in London, a group of us wanted to leave all our change on the table as a tip to our English waiter. She was so angry, she rejected it. Apparently it was too small. <laughs> <laughs> It's the thought that counts. But I think the strangest restaurant behavior is Turkish men accompanying women to the Luat restaurants. Fortunately, the new generation have discontinued the strange habits. There are also some great traditions in Turkish restaurants, such as offering you tea or coffee after the meal. Or offering to bring half portions. Or you can ask for little, little in the middle so people can share the meze or taste all dishes. If you're a regular, you do not even have to ask. You just make a gesture. Oh, yes. You raise your index finger to catch the eye of your favorite waiter. And turn your finger down and move it like you are drawing a full circle over the table. The waiter will understand what you want to eat and will bring it at once. Another great Turkish shortcut. But isn't it time for lunch or do I have to make a gesture? <laughs> 
okay, I got the message. Let me prepare something. Little, little in the middle. So we are wrapping this up now. And see you next week. See you.